Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Tessa Grigg and Catherine Davis and Jason Sifford about teaching rhythm. We covered a range of topics on this subject, including rhythmic development in infancy, Gordon's music learning theory, Dalcro's movement activities, rhythmic literacy and sequencing, backing tracks and other supplemental aids, the difference between groove and pulse, repertoire selection, and of course, we don't talk about Bruno. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to introduce today's panelists. Tessa Grigg has a wide range of experience within the early childhood education field. She has taught children aged two to eight years with specialist work in sensory, motor, and music. Tessa is the Tessa in Tessa Rose Productions, a business that has produced and performed music for children for over 30 years. Currently, Tessa is a rhythmic movement training practitioner and runs a kinesiology clinic. She completed a PhD focused on children's primitive reflexes, is working part-time as a lecturer at the University of Canterbury, and is the research and education manager for Jimbaroo Kittiroo in Australia. Jason Sifford is a freelance pianist, teacher, and composer based in Iowa City. He has a private studio of 30 students and maintains an active performance schedule on both the classical stage and in musical theater pits. Among his current projects is the Midwest premiere of the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. As a composer, he's written music across a variety of styles from a Baroque suite to a collection set in outer space. His most recent books are mid-elementary and early intermediate jazz collections published by the Willis Music Company. Pianist and pedagogue Anne Catherine Davis is based in central Mexico, but tutors pianists of all ages and levels and teachers from around the world. A medalist in numerous competitions and recipient of multiple Steinway Top Teacher Awards, Anne is a graduate of the University of Missouri and the Boston Conservatory, where she earned two graduate degrees in piano performance. An advocate of Gordon's music learning theory, trained in Alexander technique and influenced by the Taubman approach, she is the creator of the Rote Repertoire Project. Now on to the interview. And Tessa and Jason, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you, Ben. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about teaching rhythm and pulse and approach it from a variety of perspectives and also talk about it as it applies to our earliest children towards more advanced students. So Tessa, I want to get started with you. I wanted to get you on this panel to help us kind of situate rhythmic development in maybe a bit of a broader context than what might be on the minds of most piano teachers. And you're an expert in early childhood education and have a background in rhythmic movement training. And I've seen you argue that teaching rhythm early has a wide range of benefits for children that even go into areas like I think I said nutrition or all sorts of things that are not you would not immediately associate with music. So I have a two part question for you. First, can you kind of give us a very, very basic bird's eye view of kind of how rhythmic development normally works from infancy to early childhood? And second, can you expand on some of the benefits of helping very young children develop an ability to experience keeping a steady beat? Um, This kind of question, I love this question that you've asked, Ben, because I think for many people, they don't um, often think about what goes on before a, a child arrives at a music lesson, but there's so much. And I could talk about this for weeks, but I'm going to give you a very short version. (laughs) So babies start their um, rhythmic life with their mother's heartbeat. 
and in the womb that beat is what they live with and it's very loud if you've ever heard um, recordings of what babies hear in, in the womb it's it's really loud and it's really strong oh, interesting and but they can also hear what's going on outside. So children who are lucky enough to have mothers who participate in something musical get a, a, an added bonus as well. Once they're born, in uh, Western cultures, most people will do things like they'll rock their baby in a rhythmic way, they bounce them, they pat their backs gently, and they know that this is the way that they settle their babies. Some children are really lucky, and in their cultures, they have a drum beat, um, which we don't have in, certainly we don't have in the New Zealand culture. And those children are really lucky. If you ever have the opportunity to work with a child who's been part of something like that, they have this glorious um, inbuilt um, beat that just exudes all over them. I've been lucky enough to teach a few of these children. And then what happens after, um, you know, once they're babies, um, we certainly in our Western world, we've got push chairs and we put them in a push chair so we don't walk anywhere with them. And they live in much more isolated cells than they used to. So that's why early childhood people like me have to do something to artificially create that beat that children can be absorbed in. Um, and so children who have a really good quality beat experiences as young children, they'll reliably keep the beat by the time they're about two. Um, I have been lucky enough to have the odd 10-month-old who can keep the beat, uh, but that's not... Sorry, if I can quickly interject, how is that measured when you say that a two-year-old can keep the beat? How so? Well, I give them a set of rhythm sticks and okay. I say, copy me. And... Um, yeah, it's really weird. You, you've got your group of children sitting in a circle and they are tapping their sticks and you see, you watch and you see a 10-month-old and he's following you and then they lose it for a bit and then you look again and he's got it back and it's like, whoa, that one's you know on it. Um, and usually, quite often, it's the first child and the mother doesn't know any difference. She thinks everybody should do that and so I don't make a big fuss about it. But I'm aiming to get two-year-olds so that they can keep the beat and um, then the thing that we do with them a lot is that we dance with children. So um, I encourage parents to dance with them because, again, in lots of cultures, they would do that. In the evenings, they everybody, you know, would dance around and do those kind of gorgeous cultural dances that get done. Our children miss that. Then the second, the next thing that happens, the big event that happens in their lives is children start crawling. And if you watch a toddler or a crawler crawling, they do it in a very rhythmic way. Not to start with, to start with it's a bit over the place, but then they start and they crawl very rhythmically. And again, that gets the beat in. The, uh, crawling is fantastic because it also sorts out their hands and their eyes and lots to do with, um, a, you know, my specialty is uh, primitive reflexes. So a lot of that gets sorted out. So as a, a piano teacher, if you're trying to teach children with primitive reflexes that are still engaged, uh, those of you who've taught young children, you'll know that it's really hard because there's a whole lot of things they can't do. Um, I'm going to be the one who asked the naive question. What do you mean by primitive reflex? Um, primitive reflexes are those things that get children down the birth canal into life. They take their first breath. 
the startle reflex. People mostly know that startle reflex where the hands go up. Um, that's that reflex where you touch their cheek and the baby purses their lips and goes looking for a nipple. All right. So anyway, um, and uh, yeah, so the next part of your question so, yeah, so from crawling, they go to walking, and, and all of that is part of um, where they learn to, uh, you know, it, it's all rhythmic, really, because they're doing movements that uh, they have to do. It's, it's hard to walk, and, you know, if you're doing it all over the place, it doesn't work nearly as well. So the second part of your question, then, because as you can tell, I could go on for this for a long time, was about asking what can we do? I'm sorry, why do we do it? Or why is it beneficial? Yeah. So sport, music. All cognitive development relies on children being able to keep a steady beat. And um, it's about coordination. And it's about if a child who's well coordinated, of course, can play the piano a lot better. Um, and they need the beat right inside their body. So that's why at the kind of music sessions I run, there's a lot of banging of things and and I spend my whole life finding a thousand different ways to keep the beat so they don't think they're doing the same thing but in actual fact they're doing the same thing all the time and I want that beat right inside their body and I've had examples where um, I watched a, a little girl play the violin extraordinary she was what you'd call a child protege you know she was eight years old and playing amazing huge sonatas and all kinds of stuff but when I had her in my music enrichment class, she couldn't keep the beat. So she had wrote, learned how to play this instrument in a very beautiful way, but she didn't have this beat inside her. And that's what I want for children is that they've got it inside them so that it's completely natural. And mm -hmm. then when a music teacher comes along and tries to teach the child an instrument, it just happens really easily. And I've got lots of examples of that where I know the music teacher and I've had the child and they go, oh, man, this child's so easy to teach. No, that's great. I've definitely had so many situations where I've had younger students come to me. And it's amazing to me how much of a difference there is between some students who really instinctually try to play with a steady beat and how many don't. And I think it comes from a lot of those movement activities and such that you're talking about. Now, when you're working with infants, I, I think if you want to work with infants on rhythm, you kind of have no choice but to work on movement activities. I'm trying to think of what else even you could do if you wanted to. Um, but when piano teachers, we have students who actually in theory could read. So they're, it, it's not as inevitable that you will end up working with them on movement. And so I want to talk about what we do now when we have students who come to our lessons where if we wanted to work with them on rhythm through reading instead of movement, in theory, we could. And so I'd like to turn to Anne for a second. So you're um, an expert on Gordon's music learning theory. And this is one of many theories and I've, or not theory, many, one of many approaches. And I'm always interested in how different approaches deal with movement versus reading. And some of them delay reading. Some of them introduce reading right away. Some of them kind of give a sneak peek of reading and then go to um, movement. Can you talk about how Gordon's uh, music learning theory deals with, on the one hand, movement approaches to rhythm and on the other hand, notation and how this philosophy has influenced how you work with rhythm in your studio? Yeah. Um, 
oh, there's so much in that question. I love it. I don't know where to begin quite. And I, I want to say I want to be Tessa's new friend. It's wonderful <laughs> hearing all of these. Yes, this is an yeah. audio-only podcast, so no one will see this, but everything that Tessa was saying on Anne's screen, I was seeing vigorous oh, yeah. nodding in agreement every five seconds. Uh, so to talk about uh, what Gordon's uh, theory uh thinks about and puts into practice and accepts as true, I'll have to paint a little scene to establish some context so we can see what it, how it operates mm-hmm. within that context. Um, first, uh, he is known for coining that term, audiation, which I'm seeing used more and more these days than um, even 10 years ago. But especially five years ago, I started to see people use audiation more. And uh, which is kind of surprising to me because he has a specific definition for that word that he invented. And too often I see audiation used to simply mean hearing music in your mind, uh, to inner hear or uh, internalize something that you've either read in notation or, or heard performed and that you can uh, recall it to your mind. That is not audiation. That's something separate. The inner hearing is inner hearing, and it's it's great to have. But audiation is to uh, think in music, to hear music, to create music, to read music. There, there are several types of audiation, but to do all of that with understanding. And it's that understanding that's the, the key to the definition. So for example, if I were to chant a short rhythm for you, uh, something like, um, oh, here, here's a specific chant. It has a name. It's called Happy Hippos. It goes like this. Then as you heard that as musicians, you heard, oh, that's a duple meter rhythm pattern. You audiated duple meter. You brought meaning to that. I could have chanted that to a non-musician and perhaps they would have really good imitation skills and be able to sing it, chant it back to me or improvise with it on the instrument, but it wouldn't have any meaning for them. They would only be copying and um, replaying it. That's not audiating. They could even inner hear that and that's still not audiating. Audiating is to understand and have meaning ascribed to the music that that you're processing. Um, A really good uh, analogy is um, watching foreign films. I love to watch foreign films. I, I can watch a French movie and I can get a lot from it, but I have to watch it differently than any other movie because I need those subtitles at the bottom of the screen to have understanding brought to the language. I can enjoy the language. I can listen to French and think, oh, that's beautiful. I like that. I could even be really good at imitating French words back, but I wouldn't be able to speak French or understand uh, French. So that's, that is audiating, which brings us to what MLT is, which is accepting that we learn music highly similarly. <laughs> is that how to say it? To how we learn a language. So what does a language learning sequence look like? And, and Tessa is already talking about this, that tiny infants will, will move primitively and instinctually 
and eventually start to imitate what's being modeled for them. Same thing with the language process. We speak to our babies and we don't speak to them because we think, oh, they understand these full sentences that I'm saying to them. We believe that they will come to understand these full sentences, but we don't greatly modify our speech. We talk to them about, it's a beautiful day outside, and oh, look at that bird, and full, fluent uh, sentences. It's language immersion. And once they're ready, they start to babble and have their nonsense, and then they begin to imitate with more precision. And then they're having short two-word sentences as they gain more words. And then they're improvising. They're creating their own sentences in response to their surroundings. And lastly, they learn to read and write. Now, with notation, which is which is your question, Ben, about what, what does notation look like? I, I am getting there, finally. Uh, but how we learn this, when we learn it, as musicians who are following an MLT approach, is that just like an infant is immersed in language, so also we are immersed in notation. When we grow up, we see cereal boxes and road signs and our favorite bedtime story with our uh, cardboard book pages that we get to turn. And we we come to know them so well that if mom decides to skip a page because she's sick of the favorite story, oh, we know. But uh-uh. <laughs> you, can't, you can't skip this. I know the sequence. I know when to turn the page for my favorite story. That early exposure is also important. And so we have this in uh, the MLT approach also. Once my own toddler classes grow up and they're about four years old, is when I'll start to have standard notation all around them in the class. In fact, their very first uh, pieces that they learn on the piano will have the fully notated score at the top of the page. I don't do single line notation. I don't do pre-reading. Uh, pre-reading, yeah. yeah, the pre-reading, like little finger numbers, the pre-reading notation, no uh -huh. finger numbers, no. Uh, additive rhythms. We, we don't learn things like, this is a quarter note. It gets one beat because that's not true. Sometimes a quarter note could get a variety of types of beats depending what it's related to. What is its relational context of, of, the, of the surrounding rhythms? So with Gordon's uh, sequencing of rhythm, what he's done is he has researched and looked at many, many other researchers of what they have done also and simply relied on their hard work too. He didn't just come up with this out of his head one day independently of, of everything and anything, um, is that there is a hierarchy to rhythm learning. And as we master each category of rhythmic uh, function, when we're ready to move on to the next function, so the sequencing looks like this. Uh, first, we must develop a pulse, just like Tessa already mentioned. We must have a pulse. And to develop a pulse, especially in, in beginners, whether they're a four-year-old or an adult, this rhythmic learning sequence is the same for every beginner, regardless of age, regardless of chronological age. It will be faster in an adult, generally speaking. It may not, depends on the individual. But the sequence is the same. We must master the easier components before we can move to the more sophisticated components. Okay, so the first category in, in MLT is known as the macro-micro category, that once you have become more fluent in 
pulse, then you learn to divide that pulse evenly into beats of two or into beats of three. And so that gives us meter. That is the definition of meter. If the pulse is ba, 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 then I can divide it into ba, 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 or ba, 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 and I have either duple meter or triple meter based on the macro, which is the pulse, and the micro, which is the equal division of that pulse. As students hear this in classes with me and speak it back to me and improvise with it on their instruments, they then are ready to see it in notation. And miraculous things happen by the time they've had, oh, a four-year-old by eighth, tenth lesson, they have the standard notation of these simple macro-micro pieces that they're learning. All the pieces they do in the beginning are macro-micro-duple or macro, micro, in triple. There are no other kinds of rhythms at that point in these specific pieces. Then they will look at the notation and tell me things like, oh, look, this is the same as that. Or this one starts like this, but then it's different. And that's the first step of beginning to read of same versus different. And they'll even show me with their hands, they'll hold two hands up to show me these are the same. And they'll close one hand into a fist to have different looking hands and say, this one's different. And a four-year-old can do that for me so quickly um, on the macro, micro level. After that, we do division patterns. If we go back to the, the happy hippos rhythm, division happens at the end of that chant. It goes like this again. So I'm further dividing that micro beat into equal divisions. That's that's the division pattern. And usually you need to learn that. I shouldn't say usually, I should say always. Always you learn the divisions after you have acquired mastery of the macro micro level. If you don't have a pulse, then you can't divide your pulse into meter. And if you can't divide your pulse into meter, then you can't divide your meter into smaller divisions. These are a, a hierarchy you have to progress through. After that, you get to elongations. Um, that happens at the beginning of the happy hippos chant. If I'm moving side to side to the pulse, if this is ba, 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 then you can hear ba, 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 ba. That's elongating part of the macro, the micro beat into something a little bit longer. And that one particularly is a combination that's an elongation with a division pattern. Ba, 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 ba that the part after the elongation is a division of the micro after that. After that, you get into rest patterns. And I do find that in general, the method books out there understand, uh, the method book creators understand that rests are difficult. They need to come later in the sequencing. To have an empty beat isn't truly empty. You're still audiating that in, in your mind and in your body. We can't help but feel empty beats if there's a silence. So rests do need to come later in the sequencing. And after that, we get into ties and lastly into upbeats. So that's one of the big differences when we organize things uh, visually, what looks simple on the page often isn't what's simple to hear. And that has truly revolutionized uh, my own teaching over the years that if I follow a language learning model, then 
everything I present to students, no matter their age, is first going to be through experiencing it. I'm going to sing it. I'm going to play it. They're going to chant it. And then they're going to imitate me. And then they're going to improvise. That's the speaking part of music learning. It's like language. And then they'll, they'll read it. And lastly, write it by taking dictation. Huh. So on this sort of sequence that you outlined there where, yes, we introduce notation symbols early on, but we're more concerned with experience and we start with duple and triple sort of subdivision. I would call it simple and compound is mm -hmm. how I learned it. But however you describe it, then move on to rest, then there's ties and upbeats and we're delaying whole notes. So in each of those units to kind of make sure that the student really is understanding them and can't just identify it visually. Can you talk about what role sort of some of the movement, say, types of activities that maybe Tessa was describing or yeah. variations of those might play to make sure that the students really understand these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I am all about the the Laban efforts. Uh, there is one uh, piano method in publication right now that applies MLT, and that's Marilyn Lowe's Music Moves for Piano. You should have her as a guest someday. She would make an excellent, excellent podcast okay, guest. Thank you. But this um, this book combines uh, Gordon's own research into Rudolf Laban and how he, he was a Hungarian dance choreographer and theorist and expressionist dancer. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, but he uh, goes through these efforts of movement and how we move influences how we listen and understand. And how we listen and understand influences how we move. It's a continuous feedback loop happening. So let's go back to happy hippos one more time. Can you tell us it's a, a favorite chant in Duple? Because there's so much in it. So it's a wonderful, rich chant. If you were to float freely, perhaps your fingers are snowflake fingers. And sometimes oh, snowflakes blow up mm -hmm. in the air and sometimes they blow sideways and sometimes they fall to the ground. As you are moving, when I chant, then when you move like that, it tends to help you hear larger ideas. I, I hear and I experience that as a whole. One big idea, one phrase. It helps me hear phrasing. It also helps me experience the spaces that are between some of those rhythmic events when I'm floating freely, not bound to the pulse or meter or rhythms in any way. However, if I were to engage uh, a little student and there's, there's a cloud floating above your head and can you very lightly tap the cloud, and let's tap it to the micro beat. It'd be something like... Mm. Ba, 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 ba. Keep it going. Keep it going. Here I go. So this is quite different than, say, Dalcro's movement activities. And look, I love Dalcro's. I loved my Dalcro's classes. And uh, if I had to uh, give a, a definition, of, a really, really simple definition of what Dalcro's movement is like compared to the Laban efforts, is that Dalcro's is interpretive movement. Does that sound somewhat fair? That often they are looking for movements that best interpret and coincide with the music they are hearing and processing, which is fantastic. Musical interpretation is very important. Movement interpretation is important. And movement is unique. Each student, each person develops their own vocabulary of movement. Uh, each piano studio that 
engages their students with movement, has a, a movement vocabulary as uh, uh, an entity, as a society there also. So it's wonderful to meet other MLT and, and audiation-based method teachers out there because each studio looks a little different in their movement mm-hmm. vocabularies and we can learn from each other in different cultures of movement. But um, with Laban, when we do these movements that aren't interpretive, then we experience and understand what we're hearing differently. So it helps us develop our audiation, our understanding of music when we do things that are not tied to the beat and doing things that are tied to the beat. And look, we do need to have those interpretive movements also, but it comes later. More Dalcro's approach things, I believe, need to come later in a student's development. Not in the beginning when we're trying to develop their understanding and their musical ear. They do need to learn music interpretation, but I mean, how many times have we turned to a four-year-old or a beginner uh, adult student, like lesson five, and asked them, now how do you want to interpret this? What, what, what does this music say to you? I mean, at that point, they're still such um, infants in their musicianship. They don't have an opinion yet about what the interpretation is of their music. They right. need to be full of music first and then move on into an interpretation. Yeah. Okay, so if I could open this up to kind of the panel, um, let's say there are some listeners now who are open-minded to this sequence that you've outlined, Dan, where we do more... I guess, basic types of movements first, and then we save the more Dalcro's types of um, interpretive movements that you were describing for later in the sequence. For some of our youngest students, like the students who are early elementary school, who are truly just kind of experiencing rhythm for the first time, does anyone have any recommendations of other movement activities or ways we should think about our movement activities when we get our students off the piano so that they can develop kind of the type of pulse that at least Tessa was saying she tries to encourage the younger students to get to do? I mean, I probably chime in and say that, you know, I, I use a lot of what, you know, Tessa and Anne have talked about as diagnostic. You know, I, I spend a lot of time just watching my students. And so when they have rhythmic difficulties, it's like, okay, where is the problem? Like, is it, is it the steady beat or do they have kind of a faulty understanding? Are they trying to math their way through it and like, you know, do the little, you know, those awful worksheets where you have to like add quarter notes together and things like that. Um, so I find it wonderful from that standpoint to be, you know, aware of what the sequence is like, you know, same thing, like, you know, <laughs> students will get um, criticized for rushing when they get to a whole note. And it's like, no, they're not rushing. They're just bored and want to play the next thing you know what I mean? you know and i'm sure you've seen this uh same thing ben because you know you've done a lot in theater and so when you do children's theater you'll see people um like if a composer has written a little bit too long of a break kids will just come in early because they just feel like i need to do something so i guess that's where i you know sort of come at this from it's like i use it uh, I always have it in the back of my mind as being like a diagnostic tool. Like, And then once I figure out that, then it's like, okay, this is how I can meet that kid where they were in a useful place. Okay. So I want to um, follow up on these examples you're describing, Jason. So you were talking about students who uh, 
don't hold whole notes long enough and you've decided, okay, it's not a rushing issue, it's their board, or you're working with a child on a musical theater song and there's maybe a piano break before the next vocal entrance and they come in early. So since we've decided it's not so much a reading issue or understanding how many beats something is, what would be your next step to work with a student like that? I think a lot of times I try to give them, you know, I try to help them fill the space. Do you know what I mean? And this is where something, you know, as simple as counting can come in. Like, if, you know, if they're holding a, a whole note, then you hold and ready, next, go. And then they're off on time. You can do it with movement also, um, you know, and draw figures in the air. I've had students, um, you know, like tap their head. You know, they'll play something and then we'll tap our head and then we'll play and trying to just find something that they can experience in all of the space. Uh, and I have to remember, it was interesting listening to the your episode, actually, a few um, a few ago where you talked about ORF and how the ORF, you know, system is very experimental. And a lot of that really resonated with me because I just start throwing stuff out there and see what sticks, because I think for different students, it can be different things. Okay, if I can just jump in here, Ben, one of the things that I do in the dances that we do with our preschoolers is I'm, I make them wait for the introduction of the music. And that's about that learning about patterns of music and getting the beat. We might just sort of nod or while we wait for that introduction. But um, those are kind of little tricks as well that give students or children, so mine are all really little. But some of the things you're talking about are really advanced. I'm going, whoa, imagine if we could do that. Um, <laughs> but we we can't. But, but we can wait for the beach. Uh, we can wait for that, that introduction. And we can, the other thing that I always do when I'm doing rhythmic um, type exercises, you know, I've got my rhythm sticks or my maracas or whatever, I always, and a lot of music teachers don't do this because I think they uh, preschool music teachers might not have the same music background always. Um, they change their activity just randomly when it suits them. And for me, that's I always find that a real issue. I always, mm -hmm. teachers I work with, try to teach them, change your activity with the patterns and the music so that the children hear what's going on and they hear that we're coming up to a, a change, you know, in the verse. It's usually with preschool music. It's where the verse changes or the, um, you know, it goes from a chorus to a verse or something. And, and you then they learn about how to interpret music and how to understand music. A lot of what Anne was talking about just becomes natural. The other thing I was talking uh, thinking when Anne was talking was about the theory that we do and I do grade one theory with my three-year-olds and four-year-olds, which it sounds like you're wow. doing as well, and they don't know they're doing this because we do it in this mother tongue way. Mm -hmm. And it's just all part of how we do it. We just, you know, play with stuff and we're just around these things. And suddenly they've all got the rest sorted, and but they don't know really where it fits. It's just, you know, one of the things you do, like like you learn a language. So, yeah, I'm finding this conversation fascinating. Yeah, I, it's what you just said. It's amazing that um, so often we think of theory as meaning labels and terms. We don't have to know the name of something to mm -hmm. be able to do something and engage in it. We, we speak fluently and children don't have to know what the subject of a sentence is and how to diagram it and, and so on. Mm -hmm. They just speak it and they learn the labels later. Labels are great. I love labels, but it's a sophisticated level that you reach 
after these basics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I have to make a plug, I think the Piano Safari method book, which I use a lot, is very good about that. They introduce uh, transposition, I think, on like the third page. The students are already transposing, and they are not going to be able to actually really understand truly what transposing means until so much later. But it's easy to experience transposing, and I think there's so many things like that as far as theory. Um, what I think has been interesting in this discussion so far is we haven't actually, although we've talked about so many different ways to diagnose rhythmic issues, we haven't really really engage with the stereotypical ways that teachers tend to solve it. And so I'd be interested, I'm just going to bring up some of these stereotypical ways and see if we think that these are useful or not, or, or what our reactions do to the more stereotypical things, which would be external stimuli to help reinforce a steady beat. So for instance, you know, the metronome or a backing track or even apps like Piano Maestro, which kind of provide a visual representation of um, when to play on top of the backing track. So on top of these kind of more self-initiated ways of addressing rhythm that we've talked about, like the movement and Jason brought up tapping your head or the um, all the movement sequences that Anne was bringing up leading up to Dow Crows, like forgetting those that are all self-initiated. What do we think about external stimuli as a way to help with rhythmic development? I'll jump in because I'm, I'm, you know, as, you know, doing a fair bit of performing where I have to listen to, you know, a drummer, a bass player and things like that. I think, you know, being able to connect with an external stimulus is a very important goal. There are a lot of steps that have to happen before you can actually get there. And I think even a lot of, um, you know, very advanced pianists have this, uh, experience, you know, this sort of trial by fire the first time they ever have to accompany someone. And then suddenly they, you know, drop about eight levels in their ability. Um, it's, it's, kind of yeah. a strange thing. So I think sometimes if you do it right, it can be really, really useful. And, you know, again, when I was saying like, you know, if like I was saying earlier, like, you know, you diagnose. So if somebody can keep a steady beat, all right, so they can keep a beat, they can match a pulse like Tessa was talking about, you know, once they can do that, then maybe you can start like just playing along with something. A lot of times I think it's a little more interesting to play along with something like a backing track, but even then, unless they're very advanced, I will basically make a backing track in real time, either with an improvised duet part or like, mm. you know, I was going to tell a story today of a student I had last week. She's been working on Aardvark Boogie and Piano Adventures, which is, you know, this cute little tune. Has that kind of a groove to it. And, you know, she brought it in and it was it was well prepared. Like, you know, she'd had it a week. She had all the notes down. She had all the rhythms down, but it was just a little stiff. Um, so I basically just like made a drum track. You know, I've got, you know, a keyboard that has like a little general MIDI drum kit. And so I just put this thing together where I had a hi-hat. And then I just did a really easy like kick snare kind of thing and just built this. So I was able to do that and kind of like build in where that syncopation happens, build kind mm -hmm. of meet her where she was tempo and technique wise. And then and we just did that for, I don't know, two, three minutes. And it was a blast. Like she had a lot of fun doing it. And it was nice to see because I didn't have to, um, you know, fuss about her slur technique. And I didn't we didn't have to count anything and we didn't have to 
talk much at all. I just basically, you know, invented this drum beat and said, hey, it needs to groove like this because right now you don't sound cool. So <laughs> can we like punch it up a little bit? And like she was all for it. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we get along really, really well. Um, and it was a really, really fun time. And then it was interesting, like a couple seconds later, the lesson moved to Whirling Leaves, which is, you know, in the other book of that series. Um, and again, she had the same issue. It was a little flat. It was very well prepared. All the notes were there. All the rhythms were there. It was a little flat. And I'm like, you know, a drumbeat isn't going to do Whirling Leaves. Like, I don't. I'm not feeling it. So that's where we did like a movement thing. I had her, you know, you know, flatten out her hand and imagine that it was floating down from the sky. And then we did a little bit of rhythmic solfege with it. Ta-di-ta, ta-di-ta. They use takademia in the schools here. So I usually do that to reinforce it. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, so you need to play this piece, even though it's the same rhythms as Aardvark Boogie. You need to play this more with that feel. So we have ta-di-ta, ta-di-ta. They even have the same, they're even the same tempo, but the feel is so different. So I'm like, okay, so an external drum beat for the boogie. Yeah, floating leaves and some movement for that piece. And so, I don't know, it worked out pretty well. I'll be very interested to see what comes back. I'll see her this afternoon. Jason, I, I so love your uh, terms, your descriptive terms that you were using that your student was stiff or um, that it sounded, oh, there was the other term you used. It wasn't dead. It was something else that there was no, there wasn't enough life to what flat. the swing was. Oh, flat. You said flat. Yeah. I was thinking flat line, yeah. dead. What, what, what was the term? <laughs> and that you were wanting groove and you were wanting um, some inflected rhythm that was happening. And so switching from something more like the hi-hat uh rhythm that you put in for her for her backing track compared to floating your hand like a leaf while the rhythms are the same uh you're talking about what laban calls flow and this is again that language comparison where if i want i can speak like a robot but if i wanted to speak like a human i would speak like this and have inflection and an expression to what i'm doing and, and this is classical music uh, rhythm. Our rhythm is melodic rhythm. It is not the more um, uh, heavy metal, hard rock, metronomic machine rhythm, which is awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan of that too. It's just different. Uh, we have melodic rhythm. And so I wanted to, to share that um, in the Music Moves for Piano Method and MLT and uh, applying Laban movements that we talk about rhythm having four parts. And this was something that blew my mind. And as an undergraduate, actually in a theory class, it came up there and I was like, oh my gosh, I thought rhythm had three parts, but you're right, there are four. And that we have the pulse, we have the division of the pulse, which we call the microbeat, and that's what gives us meter. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we have specific rhythm patterns. But that's not enough. We have to have the fourth element, which is flow, expression and inflection of how we want to deliver that. And so one activity that my students do every lesson and uh, of all levels is that I'll play something or we listen to a recording or a backing track. I do like using occasional backing tracks with my students. 
um, once they have a fluent pulse and they can play around with something like that. It's really quite a sophisticated thing. Mm. We think backing tracks are like for really, really beginners and they're really not. They're, they're for the more advanced beginner. Um, is that first I'll ask them, find the pulse. Where's the macro beat? And it will sway side to side to find that. Okay. You found the pulse. Now find the meter and they'll either cross their arms or maybe if they're standing, they'll T- lightly tap their fingers at their sides. No sound, just just touching so that they're experiencing it. So uh, like when I was chanting the happy hippo stuff, I'm, I'm always trying to be expressive about it. I'm not going to say, and we all know what that kid sounds like. I mean, like that's every transfer student ever who comes in, like they play like this. It tells you immediately, okay, that kid learned from looking at the score. <laughs> he does not have a pulse. He doesn't know what a phrase is, and he doesn't know how to express melodic rhythm, but he's counting it, doggone it, one and two and three, or that starts with a pickup instead, but he doesn't know that's a pickup. He's going to start for Elise as a strong downbeat instead of as a pickup. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to... Uh talk specifically now about popular about like what type of repertoire we use um and i want to talk about the use of popular music in studios so um at least stereotypically the rhythmic challenges of pop tend to be quite drastic at least in my experience when you're trying to translate something from voice where it's very easy to do extreme syncopations at a very fast speed um compared with a lot of these classical pieces which are written for piano and stereotypically, again, tend to be simpler. So I've heard different sort of perspectives on the use of pop music in studios. And then I've heard other teachers say that they don't feel like it matters one way or another what you use. It's about how you teach rhythm. What do you all think about the use of um, popular music in studios as a way to perhaps get students to play rhythms that are above their Uh, maybe rhythmic reading level, but not above their playing level or more broadly using familiar pieces? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot that's helpful about using music that's familiar. I mean, I did, you know, the same goes for for, uh, classical music too. You know, once you kind of know how a minuet goes, they become a lot easier to learn. Um, I think the problem that I have, and it goes to what you were saying, Ben, about, you know, it's just easier to do some things with the voice Uh, repeated notes is one of those things. It's tricky on piano if they're fast. It's easy on a voice if you can spit the words out. Um, But also just technically, it's, you know, they're often in sort of funny keys, even if they're transposed. Um, So they end up being awkward. I end up being just really, really choosy about what I use. Uh, I will modify things if I think it'll fit a little better. Um, I'll usually take kids to the recordings pretty quickly. Um, just say, hey, let's, you know, we're trying to capture the groove. We're not trying to, you know, audit the score um, to make sure we're doing that. That's also why I write a lot as I, you know, I try to write music that's in familiar styles, but that's comfortable for where students are. Um, And then some things like I know I'm going to be throwing the sheet music out the window for we don't talk about Bruno pretty soon because everybody's going to play it. 
er, you, you know it's going to happen. Everyone wants to play it. And I'm pretty sure the music's just about out. How are you going to do that rap part? I Well, I don't really know. <laughs> play the bass line? <laughs> Probably just play the bass line. I mean, because that's where the fun is. But I think what I'm going to do is like, you know, I've got a couple of middle school students and I realized that, um, I mean, the chord progression is one that everybody knows, right? Because we've all done... Till we're blue in the face and like i mean that is how the bruno chord progression goes right it's just and that's it it was my wedding day we were getting ready i mean i'm not a singer but anyway you get the idea and i'm you know i'm telling students this week that like seriously all you have to do is just go one two that's it. Like, just walk into your choir room at school, and I guarantee you do this a couple times, and somebody's going to start singing that song. And you can do almost the entire song just doing that. But I think that's kind of where the fun is, right? Like, that's why you want to play We Don't Talk About Bruno. It's not because you want to do, you know, the solo thing by yourself at home practicing for your lesson. It's because you want to go to school and drop a beat and have everybody be like, that's awesome. And then sing along with it. So that's kind of my take on it. That's where I'm going to go with it. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, can I add something here, Ben, as well? Um, I, I, I'm of the belief that you've got to get the car moving before you can get it turning. And so um, that's one of the reasons that I ended up recording so much preschool music in New Zealand was because I could not, uh, there were songs children really liked, but they were way too fast. And the speed of songs for early childhood is just a huge issue. So I ended up recording things. And I love hearing what you were doing, Jason, because that to me is really engaging with getting the car moving in a way, you know, you've, you've been able to meet the need of that student in the most perfect way. Um, I know my son's music teacher's, tried to do that the best they could but they didn't have your skills obviously so that was a shame because he would have loved that <laughs> i'm interested in that response you just gave there so you were saying that part of uh what you made sure to do in the recordings you made was a slow tempo were there any other musical considerations you can comment on that were on your mind when making those recordings or general thoughts on when working with i guess all ages but i'm specifically interested in these very young children what are some of the musical features that tend to help with uh, movement and rhythm building exercises you were talking about well, I was very lucky to work with, um, I'm not a particularly skilled musician myself, but my business partner was, he was a, an absolutely fabulous musician. And the key things were speed. Um, he always had a, a very clear beat that went through, not all of the songs, because that gets too repetitive, but a lot of them it was. We were very fussy about diction for young children because diction is really important. And the other thing too that was um, extremely important was to have a really big range of styles of music so that, you know, we've got, um, oh, we've got, oh, just all sorts of things, classical music, um, rap, um, right through to the all the nursery rhymes. And I think that uh, particularly with young children, they need a smorgasbord. So I work with teachers at the moment, so Jimbaroo, Kindiru, and, you know, they're quite focused on what they like. I like that song. I like that song. And I'm going, this is not about you. 
this is about these children and you need to provide music that sometimes you might not like that much. But it's really important because you will find, I always found this when I recorded a song and Brian and I would look at each other and go, oh, yuck, who's going to like that one? Because it was suggested by somebody else. And we record it and it would be five children's favourite song. You know, it wasn't my favourite song. So I think as music teachers, we've got to be really careful teaching music with children that we don't just limit ourselves to what we like. That, um, yeah, that was something that's really important in our recording. I just released a solo episode today that was uh, called uh, My 15 Biggest Piano Teacher Mistakes. And one of the ones that I was talking about it was exactly what you're describing, is having a very fixed idea in my mind of what type of music children like and what type of music they don't like and just plugging everyone into that formula. Uh, Before we go, I want to kind of um, say, as I kind of heard it, the basic types of sequencing we've kind of laid out in this conversation for how we sort of teach rhythm and then invite anyone to fill in any holes or offer any kind of other guidance or um, any other thoughts before we go. So I know I'm going to miss stuff, but if I can remember, we sort of started talking about how I guess the first rhythmic experience is hearing the mother's heartbeat and then crawling with a rhythm. And then at age two, we have the sort of movement with rhythm sticks where we're able to first keep a steady beat. Um, Then once we can understand notation, Anne was talking about duple and triple meter, then that leading to rests and ties and upbeats and um, whole notes are delayed. And we kind of teach notation alongside movement activities. And then when they get older and more experienced, we might supplement that with backing tracks, as Jason was saying, and emphasizing more melodic rhythm and groove. Um, so So if we kind of think about the whole range of age, in that from our very, very youngest children or infants to our more advanced students. Any other thoughts before we go on sort of encouraging rhythmic development? Yeah, um, hearing Jason and then Tessa talk about the recordings that they make, uh, I was feeling kind of left out like, oh, I got something to say about making recordings because I do a lot of those every week. And I think the one of the biggest Perhaps the biggest takeaway I would I would hope teachers would um, really latch on to from from hearing our panel today is the importance of listening. We've got to listen. We are musicians. We engage in an aural art form. It is not a written art form. It is not uh, a dance form. It's not representational art that hangs on the wall for us to look at as long as we have the patience to look at it. It's something that is alive in the moment and you have to experience it in order to to know what it is and to become a musician. And so having this rich variety of background uh, in music, like Tessa was mentioning, that everything from nursery songs to various styles of music, it's like building a, a pyramid or something. You've got to have a big, heavy bass before you specialize in go to level two and level three and level four as it gets narrower and narrower towards the tip of the pyramid. And too often, we tend to flip our pyramids upside down and we want to specialize first. And what do I like to teach? And what do I like to listen to? And well, I I like to improvise with, with only this particular set of skills instead of providing this huge foundation where then the individual can go anywhere with it as they get older. And I don't mean older so much chronologically, but 
older musically as they become grown-ups in, in musicianship. So I do a lot of, of audio tracks for my students, not video. I do not like video tracks. I don't want them to watch and be distracted so much. I use SoundCloud now, which will organize all my tracks into a playlist so that everyone from a toddler to my adult advanced students can just click it and then play it in the background. So they have passive listening happening while they're perhaps coloring or building Legos or riding in the car. I, I don't really care. And then as they become more sophisticated, they can engage with the listening, uh, with these movement activities that we were talking about, and then take, take that listening to the piano and folk songs and nursery rhymes and all those things. And I guess that's the, the very last plug I'll make for Music Moves for Piano also is that it has 100 folk songs from around the world that are sequenced into that method. It, it's, that's pretty glorious to have such a wide uh, base that when you present it to the student, they, they will tell you which ones are their favorites opposed to the next student who will have, have different favorites. That's, that's really wonderful. It actually helps unique musicianship. I was going to just jump in with kind of like the big sort of light bulb moment I had about 10 years ago. I heard a story about a trumpet master class and the um, student was having a little bit of trouble playing this fast passage that was really high on the trumpet. And the guy basically just said, you know, you need to play this faster and up the octave. And the student's like, well, I can't even play it down the octave and slow yet. And he's like, play it fast and up the octave, go. Counted him off, kid did it kid succeeded. Guy just looks at him and goes, yeah, music tends to be easier when you play it how it goes. <laughs> I love that quote so much. And it's revealed itself as being as as being true for like years and years and years. If you just play it how it goes, it's so much more natural. And every time I listen to a student, I'm like, is that how it goes? Does it groove? If so, we got it right. I can only imagine the abject horror I would feel if that was me in that situation. Uh, before we go, can we just quickly go around the, I guess, room? Is that what you call it? Around the Zoom room? Um, and can you each give us a basic snapshot of what you're up to now and where everyone can go if they want to learn more about you? Sure. Um, let's see. I now live in central Mexico and... Uh, all of my teaching right now is online and gloriously international, something I never expected would happen. I was never an online advocate back in the dark ages. Um, but now everyone's online, it feels like, and it's pretty awesome. So I, I give teacher tutoring in MLT. I give uh, toddler classes on Zoom. I have private students in I, I believe it's seven countries now of various levels, various backgrounds. Um, everyone is different. Everyone is unique. And they're all audiating at their different uh, levels and interests and desires. So that's what I am doing now. You can find uh, me easily, I think. The, the easiest way to find me is on Facebook in the Rote Repertoire Project. That's the group that I run there, and you can see how I organize repertoire there based on how we hear it, on how we audiate, and on our skill learning sequence. Not so much on how it's organized by notation. So that's pretty fascinating, in my opinion. I would suggest you go look that up. If I could ask a quick follow-up question before we move to Tessa. Can you talk about how, and uh, these online lessons that you do, does that provide a hindrance to a lot of these movement activities we were describing today in terms of the time lag, or have you found a way to adapt? 
No, I don't find I I I find that in online lessons I do about ninety five percent, perhaps more, of what I can do in an in person lesson. And the big difference is I can't touch the individual. That's it. But having said that, in face to face lessons, I rarely touched an individual. I mean, even very small children and and infant classes with mothers, they're the ones rocking their babies and so on. I I didn't touch or or get in with, oh, this is how you move. When we manipulate someone's body, it's just manipulation. They aren't actually learning how to move if we treat them like marionette dolls and pose and fix their hand shape on the piano and whatnot. I strongly believe that all technique for the piano is learned away from the piano first. Uh, so yeah, the movement's been great in online lessons. And, and I've got my few props like floating scarves around and rolling a, a soccer ball across the, the floor and stuff like that. And they have their own props where they are at home. They bring their teddies to class and, and rock them and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But it's it's fabulous But what we can do online now. I never thought it was possible. And, oh, yeah, I am changed. <laughs> Yeah, I just had uh, Josh Wright on this podcast, who also does almost all of his teaching online now. And I think a lot of teachers are moving in that direction, even forgetting the uh, pandemic aspect to it. Uh, Tessa, what about you? What are you up to now? And how can we learn more about you? Um, well, I'm doing a couple of things. I'm um, well, teaching at university, but mostly in child development, not music. I've my music classes at the moment, we're in the surge of our pandemic, so everybody's been told to keep their children at home. And I probably will have to move online in the next thing. I've done some online. It's not my favorite way. I much prefer them in the room when they're very young. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm also the education and research manager for Jimbaroo, so Jimbaroo Kindiru. So I'm spending quite a bit of time helping teachers, and that's all online because, of course, that's in Australia, based in Australia. Um, So I do all of that online with the um, teachers that I work with. And, um, yeah, I'm still doing a little bit of recording. Unfortunately, my business partner, Brian Ringrose, who was a really well-known musician in in New Zealand, um, he died about four years ago, and I thought, well, that's the end of my recording life. And um, my son was doing a music degree in, um, you know, music recording and sound engineering. And I was feeding him one summer holidays. It was costing me a fortune. And I thought, why am I not recording? I'm feeding this really expensive sound engineer. (laughs) I'll just put him to work. So at the moment, he and I are doing some recording. And it's been really cool for him because he's had to learn all sorts of things about children's music being quite different to, you know, the kind of stuff that he's used to to recording. So you can find me on um, Tessa Rose. I'm not wildly active um, on Facebook or anything. We do have a Tessa Rose Facebook page but my music business is called Tessa Rose Productions and it comes up when you type it in excellent and Jason uh, let's see I have uh, been writing and so people can find a couple of collections of mine uh, called Kebop they're you know sort of jazz inspired uh, books at, at an elementary and early intermediate level um, also if you happen to live in Iowa uh, I'm also working on a children's musical that we're going to do as a series of camps uh, over the summer. Uh, it's called Footlighters Traveling Playhouse. Um, we're in the middle of writing our second musical right now. Uh, had a good time with it last summer, and we'll do another one uh, starting in June. So excited about those things. If people want to, you know, find me, I, you know, 
am around social media and have a website just at jasonsifford.com. And I don't know, come visit. And I hope to, you know, get back to the conference world again someday and meet all of you in person. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Okay. Well, that was very, very fun. Thanks to all of you for joining the panel and for coming on All Keyed Up today. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I'll see you next time. <laughs>